This podcast details true crime cases. It contains adult themes and may contain descriptions of violence. It is not intended for children. Listener discretion is advised. Thank you for joining me for today's episode of Once Upon a Crime. We're in the series Millionaire Murders, where people are targeted for murder due to their wealth. This is part two of Murder in the Hamptons. On the last episode, I took you through the backgrounds of both Generosa and Ted Ammon, how they met in New York and wed, how they adopted two children, and how Ted became a multimillionaire by the time of his 36th birthday. We also saw how the power and position this level of wealth gave Generosa began to turn her into a demanding, out-of-control person. The more she had, it seemed, the more she wanted. Her biggest trigger seemed to be even the hint of rejection or betrayal by family and friends alike. But her controlling ways began to drive a wedge between her and Ted. In the end, her husband betrayed her by starting an affair with another woman. And Generosa, at the end of our last episode, had filed for divorce and vowed to destroy Ted, a man she now hated and sought revenge against. Join me for the conclusion of this fascinating and tragic story that takes so many twists and turns, I couldn't put it all into one episode. This is part two of Ted Ammon, Murder in the Hamptons. As was her habit, once Generosa determined that she had been betrayed, this time by her husband of 14 years, she slammed the door on the relationship. There would be no trial separation, no working things out, or going to marriage counseling. She flew immediately with the children from their home in England to New York to file for divorce. When she arrived, she decided she needed a new home, purchasing an eight-story townhouse on East 87th Street. This would begin Generosa's campaign to take Ted for as much money as possible. She, of course, immediately set out to gut and redo the entire home, making it uninhabitable. Telling Ted she needed a million dollars for renovations, she then moved in with the children to the five-store Stanhope Hotel, renting an entire floor of rooms while the work was being done. Kay Maine, Generosa's British housekeeper, had stayed at Coverwood, the Ammons' estate in England, as a caretaker. It would soon be very clear that she was loyal to Generosa alone. Ted was staying in New York as well. They owned at least two other properties in Manhattan at this time, which Generosa elected not to live in and he sometimes went to Coverwood on the weekends. Once when he arrived, he found that Generosa had instructed Kay to put a padlock on his wine cellar and send her the key. Ted was angry that he did not have access to drink his own wine, but Generosa said that they were part of the marital assets, and the wine, like everything else, she would fight for in the divorce. Generosa cut off all communication with Ted except through lawyers. The only time he heard from her was when they had to meet in family court, where she launched into a profanity-filled tirade against him. She did not speak to him for the next year. As well, she began to cut everyone out of her life who even spoke to her soon-to-be ex-husband. She demanded friends and family alike take a side. If they were on friendly terms with Ted, they were her sworn enemy. One couple who had been friends of the Ammons had lunch with Ted, and he told them about his separation from Generosa. They were sad when they heard about it, and when they saw Generosa on the street soon after, they approached her to express their regrets. When she heard that they had met with Ted first, she didn't say a word to them. Instead, 
She hauled off and spat at them and then stalked away. They were horrified. Generosa also worked to turn their children against Ted. Greg and Alexa, now 10 years old, soon learned that if they even mentioned their father, they were met with angry tirades from their mother. They also learned that when they sided with her, Generosa was nicer to them and less angry. Over time, they would even begin to believe the lies that their mother told them about their father and start to turn on him as well. Ted went to court to make sure that he had regular time allotted to spend with his children. He would take them on the weekends, often spending time at the Hamptons Beach House. But these times, while at first, were a welcome respite from their mother's anger, it soon became more stressful for Alexa and Greg to spend time with Ted. When they would return home, Generosa would either grill them about every minute they'd spent with their father, and then become angry if they expressed any pleasure at being with him, or would give them the silent treatment for days afterwards. The children were understandably upset and confused about how they were supposed to act in this tense situation. Generosa was also advised by another wealthy divorcee that she should increase her spending. That way, the woman explained, the judge would award her more money in the final divorce settlement. Ted would be forced to pay alimony to keep her at the lifestyle she was accustomed to before the divorce, she told Generosa. Hearing this, Generosa began spending money frivolously either to follow this bad advice or perhaps just to annoy Ted, who disliked wasteful spending. One weekend when he arrived at the Hampton house, he found a $450 bottle of wine that Generosa had opened, poured one glass into a tumbler, and then left the rest of the bottle open to go to ruin on the kitchen counter. Oddly, Generosa, even with all her highfalutin ways, had a habit of drinking out of not-crystal wine glasses or the appropriate glass for a cocktail, of which she had many expensive sets, but always out of a simple glass tumbler. It was a habit she would keep all of her life. But a wasted bottle of wine was the least of Ted's financial problems. Generosa began spending money like it was going out of style. When the internet stock bubble burst, Ted lost about half of his net worth. Even so, Generosa still believed that he was worth $350 million. She said he was hiding assets. She started telling people that he was hiding $30 million in cash on his $4 million yacht. Except there was no yacht, and the $30 million in cash was also a fantasy. The truth was, if Generosa had settled the divorce quickly, she would have received much more. Every day that went by, Ted's net worth was shrinking due to the nosedive the stock market was taking in the early 2000s. For example, Ted owned 1.7 million shares of stock in 24-7 media. At its peak, the stock was worth $69 a share, or $113 million. In the spring of 2000, when tech stocks plummeted, its value fell to $0.30 cents a share, or just $250,000. But Generosa continued to demand more. Every time Ted and his divorce attorney thought they were close to a settlement, Generosa would return to court with more demands, and they would have to go back to the drawing board. In the meantime, Generosa was going through millions of dollars. Besides the money she was spending on remodeling the new townhouse, she had the following ongoing expenses. Her housekeeper was paid $50,000 per year. Her chef also received $50,000. Stephen, her assistant slash butler, was paid $100,000 per year. She also spent $50,000 for a bodyguard, $50,000 for a driver, $30,000 for a gardener, and $60,000 in general maintenance for her residence. 
The Coverwood estate alone cost $100,000 per year for its upkeep. Beyond covering these expenses, she also demanded that Ted pay her $180,000 per month in alimony. And she wanted all of the real estate they owned to go to her in the divorce settlement. Coverwood, the East Hampton house, the London apartment, and her new townhouse on 87th Street. She was also going around town telling everyone who would listen that Ted was a cheater who had fathered a child with another woman, was a person who hid money and cheated on his taxes, and was involved in shady business deals and was into kinky sex. But Generosa's over-the-top anger and rage at Ted came across as irrational, paranoid, and just plain crazy. By this time, most had already heard about her demanding control freak ways in the past, and while some may have sided with her after hearing about Ted's affair, her continued all-out war against her husband and her demand for everyone's complete loyalty to her only made them walk away from her. It can only be surmised that this brought up feelings of rejection and abandonment that Generosa had experienced as a child, always her hot-button issue, and resulted in her becoming even more angry and adding more people to her enemies list. At this time, people report that Generosa alternated between manic and then hiding away for days at a time. During her manic phases, she would rage at everyone around her about all of Ted's transgressions. She dragged the kids into the divorce more and more. She encouraged them to read the divorce papers that spelled out Ted's infidelity and other sordid details. She also began to act even more paranoid and told the kids, your father wants to kill me. She told them this is why she had to have a bodyguard around 24 hours a day. She spelled Ted's plot out for the kids. He was planning to kill not just her, but their dog, Buddy. He was also planning to kill Stephen, the butler, and kidnap Greg. He had spies watching them from the top of the Metropolitan Museum of Art, which was across the street from their townhouse. She also told them that he'd bugged their rooms at the hotel. The kids, of course, were suffering from the effects of all this chaos. Alexa and Greg had always been good students, but now their grades were falling. They couldn't focus on their homework and did poorly on tests. Greg, teacher said, was so terrified at being kidnapped all of the time that he could not pay attention in class. All of this was reported to the family court judge, who now ordered Generosa to have the children see a therapist. She had refused to previously, and now she dragged her feet, often not bringing them for their scheduled appointments. The biggest bone of contention for Generosa was the beach house in East Hampton. Remember that she considered this her house because she claimed she had designed and built it as her perfect home. She didn't want Ted anywhere near it. She didn't even want him to bring his clothes into the house. However, he continued to use it some weekends, either to spend time at the beach when it was his time with the children, or just to get out of the city. He ignored Generosa's demands. One weekend in October, Ted planned to stay at the house from Thursday night until Sunday. This was the off-season, and Generosa rarely used the house during that time. Ted had his assistant tell Generosa's butler that he'd be there that weekend. The next day, Generosa called him to say that they would be arriving at the house that Saturday evening, and that he'd better not be there. He just reminded her that he'd already informed her he'd be there, and he wasn't changing his plans. On Saturday, he waited up until after 10 p.m., but when nobody arrived, he went to bed. Generosa was sure that he was shacking up with his girlfriend at her beach house. She was going to catch him in the act. She took the kids as well as her butler and drove out to East Hampton. 
They arrived about 11.30 p.m. and snuck in through the pet door in the back of the house. Unlike the rest of the doors and windows, it was not wired to the burglar alarm. Leaving the kids downstairs to wait in the dark, she and Stephen snuck upstairs to the master bedroom. Positioning themselves at the door, Stephen pulled out a camera and aimed it, while Generosa quickly swung open the bedroom door. Ted awoke, alone in the bed, to find a camera pointed at him and Generosa screaming at him from the bedroom door. Realizing she was wrong and that he was not with a woman, she quickly switched gears. She yelled, This is my house! How dare you be here! You have ruined the children's weekend! We can't possibly stay here now! She didn't mention the camera. Ted, however, figured it out. She stomped off downstairs. Ted, who always slept in the nude, quickly dressed and followed her. By the time he'd reached the first floor, she was leading the kids back to the car. He noticed that the car had been left running. He knew then that her claims that they had come to stay for the weekend were just a ruse to try and catch him in the act of something. Her plan had failed, but that just made her more angry. Once again, his children had been witness to the ugliness, and Ted tried to apologize to them for having to witness it. He'd felt guilt and remorse for his part in ending the marriage. But now, Generosa was making the whole situation ten times worse for the children. He no longer felt sorry for her and just wanted the divorce over as quickly as possible. In the fall of 2000, Generosa discovered a lump in her breast. She had a bad cold that had gone into her lungs, so she went to see her doctor. During her examination, she was told she had pneumonia and prescribed antibiotics, but also that she needed to have tests done to determine what the lump in her breast was. Her doctor encouraged her not to delay. Instead of being alarmed, Generosa became angry. When she returned home, she called Ted to tell him that she was sick and had a lump in her breast and blamed him for this as well. Ted couldn't be sure if what she was saying was true, so he called her doctor who confirmed it. Ted then called her back and told her he'd spoken to the doctor and urged her to follow his advice about getting the tests done soon. Generosa was now furious that her doctor had spoken to Ted, the enemy. She hung up on Ted and called her doctor, threatening a lawsuit for giving out confidential medical information, no matter that she'd already told Ted about the lump, and he was just confirming it. She refused to speak to the doctor again, and his follow-up phone calls went unanswered. He even mailed her a certified letter to tell her how important it was that she make a follow-up appointment. But when she saw his return address on the envelope, she tore it up and threw it away. Of course, Generosa's mother had also found a lump that she ignored until it was too late. Generosa may have been too young to remember that it had started for her mother the same way, or perhaps she was too focused on hating and seeking revenge on Ted to pay attention to her own health. In any case, after she began feeling better from the antibiotics, she went about her life as usual, ignoring the lump in her breast. Generosa was still renovating the new townhouse. Her vision was to design it as very modern, with almost a Jetson space-age vibe. It was costing a fortune, and she had a crew of several workers already, but needed someone to begin the electrical work. One of her contractors recommended a friend of his, a man named Daniel Pelosi. She interviewed him at the Stanhope Hotel and then gave him the job. Daniel, or Danny as everyone knew him, was one of six children born to Bob and Janet Pelosi. 
When Danny was still in grade school, the family moved from Flushing, Queens to Long Island. Bob Pelosi had worked hard and moved up from blue-collar jobs to a position as a bank vice president. Danny was smaller than the other boys his age and was sometimes bullied because of it. His father, a former Marine, taught him to defend himself with some lessons in hand-to-hand combat. Danny then took what he learned and decided to seek out the biggest kid he could find and pick a fight. He attacked the unsuspecting kid and broke his nose. Now Danny reinvented himself as a tough guy. As he became a teen, he continued to act like a tough guy, dressing like he was from the streets and taking on an accent, using words like D's and D's and dem to fit in with the other hoodlums who he was now hanging out with. He began getting busted for minor offenses, like stealing beer and trespassing. Soon after he graduated high school, he was arrested for assault and served 20 days in jail. He'd begun dating a girl, Tammy, in his senior year. Soon after he was released from jail, she announced she was pregnant. After being threatened by her father, he agreed to marry her, and they were wed in 1982. Danny got a job as a laborer. While doing some demo at a job site, a ceiling beam fell on him. He received a concussion and suffered a herniated disc in his back. He was prescribed Valium for the pain. He became hooked on the pain pills and also began to drink more heavily. Later that year, he was busted for the first of many times for driving while intoxicated. He'd stopped popping pills, but had just replaced them with alcohol. He continued to rack up arrests for DWIs, until finally his father took him to a rehab center to get treatment for his alcoholism. While there, doctors evaluated him and determined that on top of his drug and alcohol addictions, he was impulsive, had a bad temper, and no self-discipline. He proved his doctors correct when he began having angry outbursts while in rehab and lashed out at the staff. He was kicked out of the center. Danny and his wife filed a $2.5 million lawsuit against the business on whose property he was injured. The next year, he was arrested again. Now he had apparently added a new skill. He was found with burglary tools and resisting arrest. He continued to do a month or two here and there being released just to be picked up on another charge soon afterwards. Meanwhile, his wife Tammy had given birth to two of his children, earned an associate's degree in college, and completed a program to become a drug and alcohol counselor. Bob Pelosi had bailed his son out of jail and paid for lawyers through all his scrapes with the law. He'd spent over $40,000 in total by the mid-1980s. Finally, in 1987, Danny was arrested once more for assault with a deadly weapon when he'd gotten into a drunken brawl at a bar. While behind bars this time, he was required to attend Alcoholics Anonymous meetings. When he was released in 1989, he'd quit booze and did not have another drink for nine years. He began working as an electrician, although unlicensed. He also had a third child with Tammy. Danny's lawsuit for his injuries was finally coming to trial, and the defense required him to be evaluated by a psychiatrist. When asked about his substance abuse and history of lawbreaking, he blamed everything on his accident. The doctor also found it odd that he was the son of a banker, but spoke in an exaggerated accent that made him sound uneducated. In his final report, he wrote that Danny suffered from mixed substance abuse, including sedatives, narcotics, hallucinogens, marijuana, and alcohol in remission mixed personality disorder with strong antisocial traits. 
It listed his accident on the job with lumbosacral sprain, currently in remission. Finally, it mentioned his ongoing marital stress based on the first two diagnoses above. In court, the doctor would state that the antisocial behavior was not a result of alcohol or drugs, but had been present from very early in his life. He also explained that sociopaths like Danny often brag that they can do everything, anything they decide to do, but actually cannot do much. While the jury determined he had suffered substantial injury for the accident, they awarded him exactly $0 for pain and suffering and $0 for loss of income. Ouch, that's harsh. They didn't just write zero on the form, they actually overscored the number zero over a half dozen times, as if several of the jury members wrote one zero on top of another. Wow, that's really harsh. Bottom line, they just didn't like Daniel Pelosi. They thought he was a con man, a liar, and possibly an asshole. Either way, he walked away with nothing. Danny continued to work odd jobs in construction, but dreamed of more. Sometimes, when he was working in Manhattan, he'd gaze at all the high-rise buildings around him and imagined all the wealthy people living there. He would comment to his buddies, there's a woman in there who's paying those big rents who's single, and she's going to be gorgeous, and I'm going to find her. Now, in late 2000, Danny Pelosi began working for one of those wealthy women, Generosa Ammon. She was demanding, but Danny just continued to agree to everything she asked him to do without question. She was spending loads of money, it was obvious, and if he played his cards right, he just might benefit. She was paying over the normal rates to her workers, and she just seemed to like spending her old man's money, he thought. One morning, Generosa arrived at the townhouse and found Danny sleeping in his truck. When she asked him why, he said it took too long to drive back and forth in rush hour, and so he camped out there instead. None of my workers have to sleep in trucks, she told him. I'll get you rooms at the Stanhope. After all, she didn't care how much of Ted's money she was spending. Danny was thrilled. When he began staying at the hotel, he and Generosa spent more time together after working hours. At first, they were friendly, and then it turned into a flirtation. Danny heard about the impending divorce and thought she was probably on the rebound. She might have sex with him just to get back at her ex, he thought. It was fine with him. Before long, she and Danny were drinking together, and his nine years of sobriety was over. One night while drinking, she confided in him that she hadn't had sex in two years. It was obvious what she wanted from him. His only question before they began a sexual relationship was, promise me you won't fire me if we have sex? They began a physical relationship and spent most of their time together. Generosa spent more money on her new boyfriend, taking him to the 21 Club for dinner and drinks, and then showing him off at the opera in a designer tuxedo she'd purchased for him. She knew word would get back to Ted that she was seen out with a younger man. Danny was almost a decade younger than her, and while not a tall man like Ted, he was a relatively good-looking guy. She liked being seen with him, but Danny thought they should keep the relationship under wraps. He was worried her ex might cut off the money supply if he got angry. Generosa wasn't worried. While Generosa was never much of a drinker before, beyond a glass or two of wine or a beer, she now began drinking hard liquor with Danny on a daily basis. The closer she got to Danny, the more she threw money around. 
Danny, of course, was all for it. It was his dream come true. Generosa was paying $300 a night for rooms for Danny as well as the crew, even though his room now was going largely unused. Danny told his wife that his rich client was putting up the whole crew at the hotel, so she never questioned why he didn't come home. He was also bringing home a good salary for the first time. So, for now, she was happy with this turn of events. Generosa was also treating Danny and the crew to breakfast every morning at the hotel at a tab of about $500. They also were treated to drinks after work that added several thousand dollars to the hotel bill. All told, Ted was paying over $60,000 per month in hotel bills alone. Danny also began spending Ted's money. He handed out cash that Generosa gave him to friends, family, and even his bartender. He spent money renovating his home on Long Island and bought a $20,000 boat for his son, Danny Jr. Soon, Danny's wife began to realize what was going on between her husband and his boss. But now Danny didn't care. He was living the life, and he wasn't about to give it up. Generosa even took him on vacation to the Jamaican Islands. When they returned, Danny tried to give his father a check for $40,000 to repay him for all the money he'd fronted him for lawyers and bail. Bob Pelosi, knowing where Danny'd gotten the money, told him to keep it until he could pay him back with money he'd earned himself. Generosa set up a corporation called Skypad and used it to run the bills through for renovating the townhouse. Of course, Danny was the first one on the payroll. One of the first things the corporation did was to lease a $40,000 SUV for him as the head contractor, although he didn't possess a contractor's license. Danny often tried to act like a know-it-all. He had an answer to every question and every problem Generosa put to him, even if he made it up. When she told him how she thought her ex was bringing women to the beach house, he told her he could solve her problem. He told her that he had a friend in the security business that could install a remote control surveillance system in the home that would be hidden from Ted. That way, she could secretly spy on him whenever she wanted to. In January 2001, Danny contracted his security expert to install a rapid-eye digital video system in the East Hampton Beach House. Cameras were hidden outside the master bedroom, in the guest bedroom, in the den, the living room, the kitchen, the mudroom, and in the children's wing. There was one camera outside covering the side entrance that led into the mudroom. The cameras were hidden inside the home's burglar alarm system motion detectors. They took video images that could be viewed live and were also recorded from a laptop computer anywhere where there was a phone line. It could even record and send pictures for up to a full year using its hard drive memory. The rapid eye unit, a flat metal box, was hidden behind a wall in the secret safe room located in the children's wing of the mansion. The only people who knew it was there were Danny, Generosa, the security expert, one of his company's workers, one of Danny's friends, as well as Stephen the butler and Bruce the cook. Ted, of course, was not informed. Ted was under surveillance from the time he entered the house until the time he left each time he visited it. When he entered his code to disarm the burglar alarm upon arriving, Danny was notified by the security company. When he left using the same code, he also received a message. There were three laptop computers that received the video images hooked up to the system. Danny had one, his friend had another, and the security expert had the third. When Danny and Generosa visited the beach house, 
he would immediately go to the safe room and unplug the system so they wouldn't be observed, plugging it back in before they left. Ted now had seen Danny Pelosi around, and while he thought he seemed shady, he was glad that Generosa had a distraction. Maybe now, he told others, she would agree to the final divorce settlement and they could move on with their lives. Ted had recently been elected chairman of Jazz at Lincoln Center. He had long been a fan of jazz music and had given generously to the arts. He was excited for the next chapter in his life to begin. His two biggest roadblocks were finalizing his divorce and getting Generosa to comply with the child custody order. The times that Greg and Alexa were supposed to spend with their father had been spelled out by the family court. However, Generosa repeatedly failed to produce the children for their visits, either not being home when he arrived to pick them up or making them unavailable in some other way. When the children did spend time with their father, they suffered for it. When Ted had them for spring break week, Generosa refused to talk to them for three days after they returned. In April, Ted and his sister Sandy picked up the kids for the Easter weekend. When Stephen brought them down, Sandy could see that they seemed frozen, as if afraid to be in their father and aunt's presence. While walking them to his apartment, Ted laid out the plans for the weekend. They were going to the beach house and would have an Easter egg hunt the next day, like they used to. Alexa said that she didn't want to go. That's mom's house, she said. When Ted said no, it wasn't, and that they were free to stay at the house with him, they began to cry and said they would never go with him to the beach house. They seemed terrified. He calmed them down by saying he wouldn't force them to go. They then began to spill out all the lies their mother had told them, that they completely believed were true. They told him that they knew he had bribed the psychologist to say bad things about their mother to the judge. Ted had a secret girlfriend and a baby, they said. Ted had asked the court to evict Danny from the hotel. Their mom had no money, and their father was dishonest in business and made a billion dollars a year, but was hiding it from Generosa. He had bugged the phones at the hotel to spy on them. Oh, and he lived in a nice apartment while they were stuck in a hotel. I'm sick of hotel food, Greg cried. He tried to tell them these things weren't true, but they continued to cry and wail that they believed their mother, not him. Ted was stunned. It seemed her brainwashing of his children was complete. He also now had real concerns about what Generosa was doing to Greg and Alexa's mental health. He felt he had no choice but to seek sole physical and legal custody of his kids. He also realized how far Generosa would go to try and destroy him. She was demanding a ridiculous amount of money, money he didn't even have, but she swore he was hiding. She was demanding all the properties as well, and the final straw was she wanted to alienate his children completely and make sure they hated and feared him. She's crazy, he told Sandy. She wants me dead. I think she's going to kill me. Sandy, alarmed, urged him to get a bodyguard for his protection. Several of his friends and business associates, who'd seen how Generosa's campaign had escalated against Ted in the divorce, had also suggested the same thing. Ted just jokingly dismissed their advice. However, now that Ted decided to seek custody of the children, he hired a private eye to check into what was going on with his ex and her new boyfriend. The first thing she found was Daniel Pelosi's background of bad debts and his criminal record. He was bankrupt when he'd met Generosa, and his home had been in foreclosure. His court psychiatric report was also dug up that listed his drug and alcohol addiction 
as well as his personality disorder with antisocial traits. The detectives begin surveilling Generosa on June 22, 2001. Danny Pelosi arrived at the East Hampton mansion driving Ted's blue Audi. Using binoculars, they observed Danny drinking several beers, while Generosa appeared to be drinking cocktails. The children were also in the home. They saw that Danny was spending the night with Generosa and driving her and the kids around in Ted's cars. One afternoon, they had a vantage point of the back of the house. Danny came out only in shorts, Generosa in a bikini. They had drinks in their hands and laid out on the chairs by the pool. Before long, they began shedding their clothes and having sex. The children could be clearly seen sitting inside the house watching television. The report was given to the judge that Generosa's boyfriend was sleeping over at her home when the children were present, even though the judge had forbidden it previously. The court was also informed that Danny Pelosi was seen drinking and then driving with the children in the car, even though his driver's license had been taken away from his multiple DWI charges. The townhouse renovations were continuing to bleed money from the Ammons accounts, and Ted's lawyers submitted to the court that the remodel project was being used as a scam to put money into Danny and Generosa's pockets. They demanded documentation of the project's accounts to see what was actually being spent on the remodel. Generosa refused to comply. Ted countered by cutting off her access to cash, as well as their credit cards, until he saw valid invoices. Generosa, now without access to the accounts, finally checked out of the Stanhope. She moved back into the Fifth Avenue townhouse. She could tell that the judge was starting to lose patience with her. She'd been admonished several times for failing to comply with the court's orders. She might not get the settlement she had demanded. She may even lose custody of Greg and Alexa. And she was cut off from the money now. She couldn't make the payments on the bank loans she'd taken out for the renovation work. She told the bank that her husband had cut her off without a cent for no reason, and she was fighting it in court. The Skypad Corporation went bankrupt without Ted's money, and Danny had to sell the SUV Generosa had given him. Things were not going Generosa's way for the first time in a long time. All of a sudden, it seemed to Ted that Generosa was ready to make a deal. Of course, she was cut off from the majority of the money, and that may have motivated her. Danny was being more civil to Ted as well. He was acting as the go-between when the kids were to be shuttled between Generosa and Ted. They were both in the city now, so it was a matter of walking the children a few blocks for the transfer. Of course, Danny would also want to see things work out so that Generosa would get her settlement and they could start living it up again. Even the kids were acting more normal with Ted. They stopped parroting all the lies Generosa had told them and were more friendly. What Ted didn't know was that Generosa had now enlisted the children to spy on their father. Alexa had more conversations with her father, asking him seemingly innocent questions while trying to gather information for her mother. Greg started going through his father's papers when he wasn't around and photographing some of them for Generosa. It was a despicable thing for Generosa to have her children do. And of course, they were afraid of losing their mother's love, as she sometimes threatened, so they complied. Of course, Ted never suspected that his own kids would spy on him, so he was never aware that this was going on. The first settlement Ted's lawyers offered Generosa was $10 million, the $8 million townhouse on East 87th Street, plus all expenses for the kids would be paid for by Ted. 
Danny urged her to settle. Generosa considered it an insult. She could only see what she was not getting, the English estate, the Soho loft, and most importantly, the East Hampton house. She still believed Ted was worth hundreds of millions of dollars and was trying to cheat her. She went into a crazy rage. She went to the beach house and began destroying everything that was Ted's, his clothes, his $41,000 mahogany desk, an antique grandfather clock worth over $100,000. The list goes on and on. Ted had begun dating a new woman, ironically, a real estate agent named Sherry, who'd shown him a beach cottage rental, the same way he'd met Generosa. He rented the house to be close to the kids when they spent the summer in East Hampton. He told Sherry he felt he was being followed, and also about Generosa's rage at him and her temper. She also advised him to enlist a bodyguard, but he once again dismissed the advice. Generosa still wouldn't settle, so to try and force her hand, Ted demanded to stay at the beach house on alternate weekends, even though he had his rental house a few miles away. The court gave him permission to be there, and he didn't want to make things so comfortable for Generosa that she would stay complacent and continue to refuse to sign the divorce papers. He asked Sherry to come and stay with him at the beach house. She refused and warned him not to stay there either. He waved away her concerns. Meanwhile, Ted believed that money had turned his once-loving wife into a mean, vicious, and greedy shrew. He determined not to let money ruin his children's lives as well. He decided to put the money for his children into trusts that would be doled out for their needs, with some of it being reserved for when they were older. In this way, they wouldn't become spoiled rich brats or go through the money too quickly. He also began giving more money to charities. He had more than he needed, and it made him happy to give it to organizations like Jazz at Lincoln Center. Ted, from his youngest days, had always been a procrastinator. He'd been advised to draw up a new will, but he hadn't gotten around to it. Generosa had long ago believed he had probably done so. Now he told his family that as soon as the divorce was settled, he would draw up a new will. The next few years would be devoted to making a stable home environment for his children, getting them the help and support they needed to heal from all the tension of the past couple of years, and to make sure they were happy and healthy. Ted Ammon was looking forward to his future with his children and doing more charity work. Things could only look up from here, he thought. Ted made his final offer to Generosa, and she finally agreed, reluctantly. She would receive $24 million in cash, her newly remodeled townhouse, and would split custody of the kids with Ted. They would spend one week with each parent alternately. The East Hampton house and the properties in England would be sold. She was, of course, most upset at losing the East Hampton house. They drew up the final divorce agreement on October 11, 2001. It was Generosa's weekend at the beach house, but she did not go. She was too upset that it would be her last weekend there. On Saturday, October 20th, Ted planned to spend the weekend at East Hampton. A few days later, they were scheduled to sign the final divorce papers, and it would be over. Ted was so happy about everything finally coming to an end that he gave Danny tickets to a Yankees game so he could take Alexa and Greg. The weather was beautiful, and he thought they would have fun. The kids liked Danny, and Ted could see that while at first he thought Danny might just be using Generosa, it was now obvious that he was going to be a fixture in their lives. 
Danny seemed to genuinely care about Generosa and she him. Why shouldn't they all get along and make things easier for the kids? Danny thanked Ted for the tickets. That week, Ted attended a charity event that was also attended by President Bill Clinton and one of Ted's jazz idols and now friend, Wynton Marsalis. That weekend, he also met a longtime friend at a bar for a drink. When his friend arrived, Ted was going over some paperwork. It was the detailed accounting that had been submitted to the court that gave Ted's current true net worth, which was just over $80 million, a far cry from the $350 million Generous had always claimed. Ted told his friend that he was inspired by the talk President Clinton had made that weekend about giving back to those less fortunate. He'd finally decided what he really wanted to do with his life, or what was left of it. He talked about wanting to work with the World Bank, helping to grow impoverished communities in third world countries. Ted's friend could see that his friend was much less stressed and much happier than he'd seen him in a long time. Saturday, October 20th, 2001. Ted Ammon left Manhattan to spend the weekend at the East Hampton House. The 9-11 terrorist attacks had happened just a few weeks prior, and it was difficult being in the city. A heaviness hung over Manhattan. So many had died, so many were still missing, and the city's residents still felt so vulnerable. It would be a welcome relief to get away for a few days. He was supposed to be in his box seats at Yankee Stadium for Game 3 of the World Series that day, but after the Twin Towers had been attacked on 9-11, the game had been postponed. There was one last incident where Generoso still proved herself to be vindictive. Ted had asked his driver, Milton, to drop off Alexa's gym bag with her soccer uniform at her mother's house. But Milton had dropped off the wrong bag. Instead, he'd inadvertently given Ted's sports bag to her instead. Inside were Ted's clothes, shoes, business notes, and wallet. When she realized what she had, she went through it, throwing most of it in the trash, just for spite. When Ted realized what had happened, he called his lawyer, who called her lawyer, who called Generosa, who lied and said she'd never received it. It was infuriating. Ted reached East Hampton around 3 p.m. on Saturday. He'd stopped for some groceries when his sister Sandy called. He told her he was spending the week at the beach house and that the final papers were to be signed the following week, and he was much relieved that it was all over. They both said, I love you, before hanging up. When he punched in his code to shut off the burglar alarm after arriving home, he would have no idea that, at that moment, the security company sent a message to Danny, letting him know that Ted had arrived. Ted went to dinner alone that night, and then took a walk on the nearby beach. He returned home, locked up the house for the night, undressed, and got into bed. At two in the morning, someone logged into the Rapid Eye program with a laptop computer and looked at the videos that were being captured in the East Hampton house. All was quiet. After 21 minutes, the remote user shut off the entire spy camera system and logged off. Monday, October 22nd. Ted's driver, Milton Macias, arrived at Ted's 92nd Street townhouse to pick him up for the drive to the office, as he did every workday. However, Ted was not home. Milton then called Mark Engelson, Ted's business partner and friend. Mark and Ted talked every day. Mark told him he knew Ted was staying in East Hampton for the weekend 
but he had not answered Mark's calls on Sunday when he'd tried him. Mark tried his home phone number as well as his cell phone after talking to Milton. Still no answer. He then began calling around to his friends and family to see if they'd heard from him. No one had. That afternoon, when Ted failed to pick up his kids after school, Mark knew there was something definitely wrong. He tried to keep his heart from sinking, but he felt a definite sense of dread. Mark asked Milton to meet him on the helipad of his corporate office. They then took the corporate helicopter, the quickest way to get to East Hampton and 59 Middle Lane. They landed at the East Hampton airport, and Milton hailed a cab for the short drive out to the mansion. When they pulled into the driveway, they saw both of Ted's cars, a blue Audi station wagon, and a silver Porsche parked there. There was no sign of Ted. Entering the house, it was eerily quiet. They called out to Ted a couple of times, but there was no answer. Before they walked through, they both had the presence of mind, probably knowing this wasn't going to end well, to put on work gloves. They walked through the bottom floor, but it was unoccupied. They then began climbing the stairs to the second floor. At the top of the landing, they saw the entrance to the master bedroom. After just a few steps towards it, they froze. There was blood everywhere, mostly dried a dark brown. It covered the white walls, the white sheets on the bed, and a tan rug in the middle of the bedroom floor. In the middle of the rug was Ted's body, naked and twisted into a fetal position. His head had been bashed in repeatedly, and there were defensive wounds on his hands and arms. Besides the blood in the bedroom, there was also blood spatter found at the base of the stairs, on the living room rug, and even out on the rear patio. Mark called 911, and investigators soon arrived. This was the first murder to occur in East Hampton in almost 20 years. They found that the doors to the mansion were unlocked, and the burglar alarm wasn't on. The cause of death was repeated blunt force trauma to the head. Ted had fought for his life, as the multiple defense wounds on his body would attest. The body was already at room temperature, so death had to have occurred many hours before it was discovered. They did a thorough search of the home and surrounding area and neighborhood, but no murder weapon was found. However, the tools in the living room fireplace stand were missing, and they wondered if perhaps a heavy fireplace poker might have been the murder weapon. Right away, detectives began hearing the names of Ted's ex-wife, as well as Danny Pelosi, as possible suspects. At 2 p.m. that day, Suffolk County detectives arrived in Manhattan to interview Generosa. Danny answered the door and said they could not speak to her. She did not yet know that Ted was dead, he told them, and he didn't want her upset. But then he told them that Generosa's divorce attorney had advised them to get a criminal attorney. Why, they asked, were you involved in Ted Ammon's murder? He denied it. Later that afternoon, Generosa went to pick up Alexa and Greg from Ted's apartment. They were with his housekeeper. She told them that their father had died. As they cried, she explained that he had taken too much medication and drank too much. Not long afterwards, however, Ted Ammons' death was in all the papers, and the twins heard that he'd been murdered. When they questioned their mother, she said, maybe one of your father's boyfriends killed him. Generosa began floating the rumor that Ted was bisexual and that he was probably killed by a male lover. However, even though Ted was well-known to be a millionaire and had been killed in his mansion, it wasn't a robbery gone wrong or something of that nature. 
The house had not been ransacked and nothing was taken, including over $1,500 in cash that was in Ted's wallet that had been left in plain view on the kitchen counter. Just a day or so after Ted was found murdered, investigators discovered that there was a secret video surveillance system installed in the house. They contacted the security firm owner who had installed the system. He explained how the nine video cameras continually monitored the house, taking one frame per second. He told them that the system was hidden behind a wall in the safe room. When they entered the safe room, they saw Alexa's toy tea set inside, as well as a Monopoly board. The kids had used it as a secret playroom at times. On the wall where the rapid eye system had been installed, they saw that the video system had been ripped out. All that was left was a bundle of black wires it had once been connected to, and the fiberglass insulation that had been pulled out from the wall as well. Apparently, the video system had been hidden behind it. Investigators determined that the killer must have known exactly where the video system had been located, and most likely what it might have captured, so they took it with them. The security firm owner verified that both Generosa and Danny knew about and operated the system. Ted was unaware of its existence, they found out. He also told them that Danny knew how to unplug the system. He explained that the system's main hard drive could not be changed once the photos had been captured, at least not without leaving evidence on it that photos had been erased. As well, the cameras could be shut off remotely using the laptops, but the main hard drive and the separate laptop hard drive would have a record of it. He also said he'd never shown anyone how to shut off the cameras. There was one other way the system could be disabled, he said. Someone with a working knowledge of electricity could figure out how to do it. They could cut off the main power switch to the electricity outside of the house to shut down the system, but there would be a record of the power interruption and the fact that it had been rebooted on the hard drive. But they figured out that if the power had been shut off, the burglar alarm in the house would have begun to beep, most likely awaking Ted. Also, the digital clocks in the house would be flashing or show the wrong time. Neither had occurred. The power had not been shut off. But if the system had been shut off before the murder and then the main unit had been removed, in this way also removing the hard drive record of who had shut off the cameras, then Ted's murder would not have been broadcast live. To retrieve any information the surveillance system might have recorded, they would have to find the hard drive that was removed from the house or the laptops that had been used to access it remotely. That is, if they had not already been destroyed. Investigators would tell no one about their discovery of the spy system. Generosa and Danny quickly lawyered up. She then released a statement denying any involvement in Ted's murder. Of course, other rumors began to circulate. His murder was a result of a business deal gone bad. He was having an affair with someone, and a jealous boyfriend or husband killed him. But most people suspected Generosa of being involved, and or her ex-con boyfriend, Danny Pelosi. There was some suspicious activity by the pair as well. The Saturday after the murder... Danny drove to the apartment of one of Generosa's lawyers and gave him the laptop computer that had been used to spy on Ted at the beach house. After a week, the police released the house back to Generosa, having concluded their investigation of the crime scene. She hired a cleaning company and had them take out the rugs in the bedroom and living room. Police had cut out sections of the rugs as evidence. She also had her own lawyers hire forensic investigators 
to take their own crime scene photos and write reports before having the house thoroughly cleaned from top to bottom. Just two days after the murder, the Monday Ted's body was found. An auto body shop owner located on Long Island near Danny Pelosi's house opened the door of his shop to find a blue 1999 Audi parked outside with the keys dropped in the door slot. He was not expecting a car of this description to be left for repairs and had no idea who it belonged to. He did a license plate check and found it was registered to Robert Theodore Ammon. The name didn't ring a bell, and he put it out of his mind for the time being. The car had been left by Danny's nephew. Two days later, Danny instructed them to have new brakes installed and that he wanted it detailed inside and out. He wanted all the surfaces chemically treated. The coroner had made note of some small marks on Ted that exactly matched the marks that would be made by a certain type of taser gun. They were working on the theory that someone had incapacitated Ted by using a taser gun on him before bludgeoning him to death. This detail was also not revealed to the public during the investigation. Some months earlier, Danny had given a taser to his wife, Tammy. Now he suddenly called his brother, Jim, who was a cop, to ask a question. Would he be in violation of his probation if he was in possession of such a weapon? You dummy, his brother scolded him. They're going to violate you. Danny then asked his brother if he could get rid of it. He told him he could put it in the drop box at work. The drop box was a metal tube where people can surrender weapons anonymously to be disposed of. Once the serial numbers are checked to make sure they haven't been reported as being involved in a crime, they're melted down. Danny told him it was at Tammy's house, so Jim picked it up and took it to be disposed of. On Monday, November 13th, another vehicle showed up at the same body shop. This time, it was Ted's station wagon that was always at the beach house. The keys had been left, and Danny called the shop to ask them again to change the brakes as well as the tires and detail it inside and out, including the cloth upholstery. Meanwhile, detectives could still not get an interview with either Generosa or Danny. As typical of suspects with money, police had to go through their attorneys, who continued to say that they would not submit to questioning. The story of the murder of Ted Ammon was big news in all of the New York papers at the time. Media outlets began to surround Generosa wherever she went, trying to get a statement or a picture of her. Generosa hated the attention and continued to stay silent and hide whenever possible. However, Danny seemed to enjoy the attention. Whenever they approached him, he continued to deny any involvement, but he'd spend several minutes giving his theories to reporters about who'd murdered Ted. His thick New Jersey accent, coupled with his ex-con status and ever-present gold jewelry and leather jackets, made him a colorful figure that the press couldn't get enough of. He thought himself somewhat of a celebrity, but really, he came off as an entertaining clown. Think Joe Pesci without the talent. He also liked to flap his lips to acquaintances. The cops were talking to everyone and anyone who might be able to provide information. A friend of Danny's told them an interesting story that Danny had shared with him. Danny told me that the man was hit in one room and was found in another room. Danny had said, allegedly, he was bashed in the head, murdered, and dragged into another room. Investigators had determined that Ted had fought, originally struck in one part of the room, and tried to get away, making it close to the bedroom door, before he'd been killed. This detail had not been shared with anyone. On Wednesday, November 14th, Ted's will was entered into a Manhattan court. He had not yet updated it at the time of his death. 
It was dated August 22, 1995. His entire estate was bequeathed to Generosa, minus a tax-exempt $675,000 as a gift to his children. As well, since the final divorce papers were scheduled to be signed the week after his death, Generosa was still his legal wife. She was legally entitled to 100% of his assets. Two days later, however, a petition was filed with the court by J.P. Morgan Chase. The bank was co-executor with Generosa. Normally, the bank would just transfer the funds to the surviving spouse, but since a homicide investigation was still pending, the bank asked that no assets be transferred to her until the investigation was concluded. The bank also asked to be named sole executor. The court decided to freeze the assets at the request of the bank. They allowed her a $50,000 per month allowance until the matter was settled. This, of course, was chump change for Generosa. She couldn't believe it. As well, the lawyer for the bank had attached a report filed by the court-appointed psychologist to their filing. This was from the interview that had been done with Generosa and the children during the divorce and custody cases. The report said that Generosa suffered from many features of borderline personality disorder, narcissistic personality disorder, and paranoid personality disorder. It stated that she was paranoid, delusional, and had a violent temper. It also stated that she was an unfit mother who involved her children in a vicious divorce and had emotionally abused them. It outlined in great detail her all-encompassing hatred for Ted. Detectives still had no solid evidence against Generosa or Danny, and without anything on them, they were free to go about their business. What they decided to do was to flee to England and out of the glare of the spotlight. They may have thought if they stayed away for a while, everything would die down and they could return at a later date. But before they left, they got married. Whether it was for love or so that they couldn't be compelled to testify against each other or a little of both is unclear. In a scene completely opposite from her fairy tale society wedding to Ted, Generosa married a recently divorced Danny Pelosi at a borough hall in Queens, New York. It was held in secret so that the paparazzi wouldn't show up. They had a quick civil ceremony and then hopped on a plane with the children. Ted had been dead less than three months. The papers in New York found out soon after about the wedding, and they dubbed her the Merry Widow. English reporters soon found their way to Coverwood House to cover the story that had now become an international item. But Danny was still facing another DWI charge in New York. When he didn't appear for his court date, a bench warrant was issued for his arrest. He flew back to the U.S. in February to face the judge. His passport was taken away, so he couldn't flee back to England. Generosa now made plans to fly to New York to be with her new husband. But before she left, a fire broke out at Coverwood. It was put out by the fire department quickly, but it had destroyed part of Ted's study. His desk and his files had burned. The only things completely destroyed were some of Ted's personal papers, as well as a laptop computer that had been brought from the U.S., the computer that had been used to spy on Ted. Generosa moved back to the U.S. and in with Danny, who was living in the basement apartment at his sister's house on Long Island. To Danny, it proved that Generosa truly loved him, and perhaps it was true. The children were put back into their private boarding schools. 
Danny began speaking to the press again. He told them that DNA proved he was not involved in the murders. He also said that Ted was actually worth $300 million more than reported, and the missing money was the clue to finding his killers. Most of the press and the public still believed Danny was responsible for Ted's murder. They just wondered why he hadn't been arrested already. The case against Danny, according to investigators, was as follows. Ted was beaten to death and had stun gun marks consistent with the type of taser Danny had owned, the one that was missing. He was having an affair with Ted's widow, who had vowed to have him killed. She inherited everything after his death. Danny had a secret video surveillance system installed to spy on Ted, and he knew when he was at the Hampton house and if he was alone. Finally, his alibi for the night of the murder could only be corroborated by his own family and friends. A few months later, Generosa's lawyers were able to get a judge to rule that the bank could not freeze Ted's estate. She also sued to obtain a $15 million settlement from Ted's business insurance. She began selling off property, including the Fifth Avenue townhouse for $10 million and Coverwood for $8 million. She was able to liquidate at least $30 million in assets. She and Danny purchased a $700,000 ranch house on Long Island. She began to remodel it, including a two-bedroom apartment in the basement for her kids. They began to live like a normal upper-middle-class family. The kids now attended public schools, and they began to feel normal again. They loved it. They had also grown close to their stepfather, Danny, especially Alexa. He treated them well and was a fun companion for them. He also took care of their mother, and Generosa seemed more calm, and while perhaps not happy, at least somewhat content. Generosa was still staying out of the public eye, but Danny was still eating up the attention and living as a well-to-do man of leisure. He'd spend tens of thousands of dollars taking his buddies on trips to Vegas, where he plunked down astronomical amounts on blackjack tables and roulette wheels, which he quickly lost. Generosa stayed home. In June of 2002, Generosa became ill. She was stricken with a high fever and was having trouble breathing and collapsed. Danny took her to a doctor who, after taking x-rays, told him that Generosa was riddled with cancer that had attacked her breasts, lungs, and kidneys. She was sent to Beth Israel Hospital in Manhattan for tests, where they found that, like her mother, the cancer had spread too far and was too advanced for surgery to be an option. It was also found in her brain, the same way it had in her mother's case. Generosa did not want radiation or chemotherapy. Now she recalled the conversation she'd had with her doctor two years earlier, when she'd found the lump in her breast. Instead of lamenting the fact that she hadn't heeded his warnings and been tested early, she found a way to blame her dead husband. He knew she'd had cancer, she told Danny, and had kept the secret from her. He told her to go for tests, yes, but that had been a trick. Uh, what? Eight months after Ted's murder, she still hated him, and blamed him for all her problems. She also told her children about her illness and that it was their father's fault that she was so sick. She decided to undergo chemotherapy and made up a new will that left everything to Danny except what was already in trust to the kids from Ted's estate. Danny, however, told her not to do so. It wasn't right, he said, that the kids were cut out of the estate. I think he really did care about these poor kids, but as well, he knew that it wouldn't look good to the cops that he was the sole beneficiary. So Generosa changed her will again. This time, one-third of her estate went to the children, 
one-third to Danny, and the last third would be held in trust for him. Generosa began taking heavy pain medications. On top of that, she was also drinking heavily. She was often incoherent. Kay Main came from England to take care of her and the kids. Soon, however, all her time was filled caring for Generosa, and the children were taken in by a family friend of Danny's who lived nearby. The couple had two children of their own, and they were kind and loving to Greg and Alexa. Generosa gave more power and responsibility to Kay Main. Kay had long reminded her of the English housekeeper she'd had as a child. Now that she was so sick, and Danny was looking at another stint in jail on his DWI charge, she depended on her for almost everything. Danny decided to plead guilty to the charge and was given a deal of four months in jail. Generosa stopped the chemo treatments because she didn't want to go bald, she said. Greg and Alexa wanted to see their mother more often, talk to her, spend time with her, because they could sense that they were going to lose her, but Kay would not allow it. They began to tell their guardians how much they hated the British nanny. Danny and Kay also didn't get along. Danny tried to hold his tongue so as not to upset Generosa, but Kay was becoming a dictator in their home. Kay was an odd woman. She began to tell people that Danny had told her he'd killed Ted. She began to spin wild, outrageous stories about the murder that didn't at all reflect reality. Also, Kay would be the last person Danny would tell a secret to. He didn't trust her as far as he could throw her and felt she was trying to manipulate Generosa now that she was so sick and dependent on her. Kay began talking in Generosa's ear about Danny. What exactly was said, or whether it was her influence or Generosa's increasing use of morphine and other heavy-duty pain medications, is unknown, but she decided to change her will once again. This time, she deducted $2.6 million of Danny's portion for the money she said he'd wasted on gambling debts and other frivolous activities. Before he had to report to jail to begin his four-month sentence, he took one last trip to Vegas with his buddies, taking with him over half a million dollars in cash. He still had access to Generosa's accounts as her husband. It was his last hurrah, and he was determined to make the most of it. While he was gone, Generosa began to believe he was cheating on her. She consulted with Kay, and then her lawyers, and decided to leave the kids to Kay. Kay also talked Generosa into moving out of her and Danny's house and into the East Hampton house. The kids freaked out. They didn't like Kay and didn't want to be left with her, and they surely didn't want to return to the house of horrors where their dad had been murdered. But they had no choice. Danny was heading off to jail, and Generosa filed to make Kay the children's legal guardian in the meantime. She was granted temporary guardianship in February 2003. Ted's sister Sandy had filed a request to become their guardian, but Generosa lied and said that they didn't have a relationship with their aunt and uncle and only saw them once a year. She accused them of being after the money. However, Sandy and Bob had specifically told the court that they were not seeking any compensation. They simply wanted to raise Ted's children. The judge determined that Generosa was competent to make the decision for her children and appointed Kay Main as their temporary legal guardian. While in jail, Danny continued to keep in touch with Generosa by phone daily. The detectives were still investigating Ted's murder. Now they began rounding up suspects to grill about Danny and his possible involvement in the case. It seems they thought someone would crack, now with Danny safely behind bars. They began bringing in several of his friends, 
family members, and associates for questioning, including his ex-wife Tammy, but they didn't find anything of merit to help them prove he was guilty. However, a grand jury was set to be impaneled to hear the details of their case. By the time Danny was released from jail that summer, Generosa had moved back to the beach house. Danny was not invited. She said her lawyers told her that she would never get her millions unless she separated herself from him. They believed an arrest for Danny on murder charges was imminent, and they didn't want Generosa dragged into it. Danny believed that the cancer in her brain, combined with the drugs and alcohol, as well as Kay's vendetta against him, caused Generosa to turn her back on him. On July 1st, Danny went to Generosa's lawyer's office with his attorney, where he agreed to sign a post-nuptial agreement. Now, knowing that he would probably be facing murder charges, he needed money for his defense. They promised him a $2 million defense fund if he signed. The agreement had a quit-claim provision that stated that Danny was not entitled to any of Generosa's estate once he got his $2 million. However, they told him, it was just a formality and he was well taken care of in Generosa's will. Sucker. After talking with Generosa, he signed the agreement. The next day, the children were scheduled to move out to East Hampton with Generosa. When Danny arrived, he describes Generosa as glassy-eyed and completely out of it. The children were crying and didn't want to go. He felt so sad for them and went to them to hug them and tell them goodbye. Kay began screaming at him as he approached. You stay away from these children because I'm their guardian. You are nothing, she screamed at him. Generosa had changed her will to give Kay guardianship of the children, as well as the right to live in the East Hampton house for the rest of her life, plus $1 million in cash. Before she left Danny, she signed over the house on Long Island to him. But Danny had been completely cut out of her final will. He would receive nothing else. However, Danny had one final trick up his sleeve, he had had his security guy reinstall the rapid eye system in the house, and it was now secretly recording and watching Generosa and Kay. And things weren't so rosy at the house. Generosa was getting worse every day. Greg was threatening to run away or commit suicide if he had to continue living at the beach house, so they enrolled him in a boarding school in New England to begin that fall. It would be the first time the twins had ever been separated. The grand jury was wrapping up its case. They subpoenaed the laptop computer that had been given to Generosa's lawyer. He turned over what he said was a copy of the hard drive, but not the computer itself. He refused to say who'd given him the laptop or who had it in the months since the murder. After a ruling by the judge, he was forced to admit that Danny had turned over the laptop to him after the murder. He said that it had been sent out to have the hard drive copied, and then he'd given it to Generosa. The laptop, he said, was destroyed in the fire at Coverwood. In late August, Generosa was taken to Lenox Hill Hospital in Manhattan. She kissed her kids goodbye before leaving the beach house. She walked into the hospital on her own and signed in under the name Mary Taylor. She died on October 22nd, 2003. She was 47 years old. Her lawyer contacted Danny several hours after her death to inform him of her passing. Her body was cremated and Danny went to the funeral home to collect her ashes. He walked five blocks from the funeral home to the Stanhope Hotel, 
the place they had first met. He was carrying a shopping bag that held a box containing her ashes. He went to the corner table in the bar, where they'd spent many afternoons and evenings together. He ordered a beer for himself and a cosmopolitan in a rocks glass, Generosa's favorite drink. He took the box out of the bag and placed it next to him on the table. Draping a white linen napkin over the plain cardboard box, he placed Generosa's gold wedding ring on top. He clicked the glasses together and toasted her, taking a sip of his beer. He then lit two cigarettes, took a drag from his, and placed hers next to the box until it burned down to ash. A New York Post reporter reached Danny on his cell phone as he was performing this ritual. He shared where he was and what he was doing. A photographer was quickly dispatched to the Stanhope, where he took a picture of Danny sitting in the bar, toasting his dead wife's ashes. In the fall, Greg left for the New England boarding school, and Alexa remained in East Hampton with Kay and attended a local private school. Together, the children had written a letter to the judge in their custody case, stating that they didn't like Kay and didn't want to live in the house where their father had been murdered. Danny began to go on numerous television talk shows to protest his innocence. 2003 ended, and still there were no indictments handed down in Ted Ammon's murder. Danny began dating a new woman in late 2003 and got engaged in January 2004. Soon after, the grand jury granted Danny's nephew, Jeff Luckert, immunity. Jeff had been Danny's alibi for the night of the murder. On March 22, 2004, almost two and a half years after Ted's murder, Danny was charged with murder in the second degree. The nine-month grand jury investigation had called 51 witnesses and examined more than 100 exhibits before handing down an indictment. It said that the killer applied a stun gun on the victim's neck and back. The fatal assault inflicted defensive injuries in the form of fractures to Ammon's hands and arms. He also suffered fractured ribs, punctured lungs, and 30 blows to his head. The defendant had purchased numerous stun guns before the murder and after the slaying made statements that implicated himself as well as others in the killing. On the night of the murder, the defendant had the capability to look inside the house for 21 minutes at approximately 2 o'clock in the morning. He was the only one who knew how to unplug the secret surveillance system that spied on Ted and was one of the few who knew it existed and where it was, behind the wall inside the secret safe room. The Rapid Eye unit was hidden within the recesses of that home in a location which was known to very few people outside of the installers. One of the only individuals who was aware of the location of that hard drive unit, as well as the power source, which was a simple plug, was Daniel Pelosi. After the killing, the unit, with its hard drive containing thousands of photos, was removed from the mansion, a key piece of evidence that strongly points to the guilt of Daniel Pelosi, it read. He faced 25 years to life behind bars if convicted. It had only been three and a half years after he first met Generosa Ammon and believed her to be his golden ticket. Also, the day he was indicted, March 22nd, was Generosa's birthday. Danny Pelosi's murder trial began in October of 2004. His defense team tried to introduce alternate theories, including the story that Ted was bisexual and had been killed by a gay lover. They pointed to the fact that he'd called his girlfriend that night while walking on the beach, a well-known gay meetup spot, according to the defense. They also brought up the fact that he was found nude. 
but it was known by his family, ex-wife, and girlfriends that he always slept nude. The prosecution brought forward witnesses who said Danny admitted that it was him, his nephew Jeff, another friend, Chris Perino, who'd been involved in the murder. They also testified that he'd said Generosa had been present the night of the murder as well. One witness testified that Danny had said he'd bashed Ted's brains in while he'd begged for his life. He laughed as he told her, she said. Danny's sister Barbara also testified that on the night of the murder, Danny called her and told her to retrieve a bag he had stashed in her attic and put it outside for his friend Chris Perino to pick up. She refused, so he showed up around 1 o'clock in the morning and picked it up himself while Chris waited outside. She said Danny and Chris then drove off in Ted's station wagon. He didn't return until after sunup, she testified. The prosecution's forensic accountant testified that Danny had spent at least $3.8 million of Ted's money for himself and his friends before and after the murder. Danny, it seems, hadn't learned his lesson from way back when he testified at the lawsuit hearing. Remember when the jurors hated him and awarded him zilch? The genius that he was, he decided to testify at his own murder trial, a move that is risky at best and insane at worst. Here's one of his typical exchanges on the stand. When asked about his motivation for killing Ted Ammon, being the millions of dollars that his girlfriend would inherit, he said, I don't want none of Mr. Ammon's money. It belongs to the children. Prosecutor, and you're still suing the surrogate court to set aside your postnuptial agreement so that you can get a piece of the estate, aren't you? Danny, so I can give it to the children. Prosecutor, the children already have it, Mr. Pelosi. That's what's in the will, right? Danny, I don't understand the question. You can see he doesn't come off too well. He also was goaded into admitting that he was angry the week before the murder and was heard yelling about Ted hiding assets and not giving Generosa a fair deal. He also admitted that he'd owned and used stun guns in the past and had thought it was funny to tase co-workers. He even said he liked the way they jerked and fell down when he shot them with a taser unexpectedly, chuckling on the stand. Finally, the prosecutor asked, Mr. Pelosi, did Generosa Ammon ever ask you to murder her husband? Yes, he answered. Generosa wanted to know if I knew of anybody who could kill her husband or if I could do it myself. However, he continued, he'd agreed to need the request. After a three-month trial, the jury decided on a verdict. Guilty of second-degree murder, he received a sentence of 28 years to life and was sent to the Southport Correctional Facility in upstate New York. He has had several disciplinary actions in prison, including being put in solitary confinement for inappropriate conduct in the visiting area, disobeying a direct order from a correctional officer, and making threatening phone calls to an unnamed woman in 2011. He will be eligible for parole in 2031 at the age of 67. Before his trial, he wed his pregnant girlfriend, who gave birth to their son four months before he was convicted. But here's the question that's still debated to this day. Was Generosa involved in her husband's murder? And if she was, did she contract out his killing by Danny and or his friends? Was she present at his murder? Or did she take part in the murder itself? Some theorize that perhaps she knew she had cancer and was going to die and had nothing to lose. I'm not so sure about that. She seemed to be in deep denial until it was too late to do anything about her illness. Or perhaps some think 
she felt remorse for her part in Ted's murder and allowed herself to die. If so, she sure never seemed remorseful. She was even blaming him months after his death for her diagnosis of terminal cancer. Send me a message on Facebook and let me know your thoughts about this case. But for what it's worth, here's what I think. The main thing that I think points to Generosa being involved in Ted's murder is the fact that she was so full of rage that she was out to destroy him in every possible way. I believe then, when she found out that she wasn't going to get everything she wanted in the divorce agreement, she lost it. She was going to have to settle for a certain amount of money that she thought was unfair, split custody of the children, and the icing on the cake that she wasn't going to be allowed to keep her East Hampton house. After all that, the only thing that would appease her was to see him dead. They were just about to sign the final divorce papers, and for all intents and purposes, she would have no more claim or control over his life. It reminds me of the Betty Broderick story back in episode 42. Betty had the same kind of hatred for her ex, who she felt had rejected and abandoned her. When she finally had to accept the fact that he moved on and married another woman, she could no longer control her rage. Betty had also been diagnosed with borderline personality disorder and narcissistic personality disorder like Generosa. The way that Ted died makes me feel that this was a rage killing. The coroner's report states he was hit with a blunt object 35 times. A person who was merely trying to get rid of him, which would have been Danny's motive, to get rid of him so Generosa inherits his entire fortune, would have used a gun and gotten in and out quickly. Instead, Ted was bludgeoned repeatedly until he was dead. That's a very rage-filled and personal killing. Danny never seemed to have much anger towards Ted. He actually spoke to him pretty amicably most of the time. But I do believe Danny was involved. The most likely scenario is that Generosa went with Danny and perhaps another person to the beach house. They'd snuck in before, so they knew how to get in without Ted being alerted. I think maybe she had Danny use the taser on Ted to incapacitate him, and then she attacked him. Some people say no, she was a petite woman and couldn't have caused that much damage. But if you've ever seen someone go off when they are enraged, you know that they can seem to have superhuman strength. The surveillance system unit was then taken, and the laptops hidden or destroyed so that it couldn't be determined who had turned off the system or if anything had been recorded leading up to the murder. Danny and Generosa had the system installed and would have known how to get rid of the records. It's just a shame that the authorities didn't find the laptops or the hard drives before they could be destroyed. Generosa Rand Ammon could have lived a charmed life. Indeed, she did for several years. She had met and married a man who genuinely loved her and even put up with her demands. He encouraged her in her passions and hobbies and gave her all the money she could ever need. They adopted two beautiful children together, and their lives could have been wonderful. Unfortunately, Generosa was emotionally damaged from way back and could not get over the feeling of rejection she'd experienced as a child. But she was her own worst enemy, in that she demanded more and more from those who loved her until she pushed him away with her behavior, thus fulfilling her belief that people would ultimately always reject her. Nothing was ever enough, or perfect enough, or certain enough for Generosa to be satisfied. Ted was not perfect either. We hate to speak ill of the victim, and that's not what I mean to do. But just as a cautionary tale, we can say that he ignored a lot of warning signals. 
He ignored too much bad behavior by Generosa from the get-go. If he'd spoken up earlier when she was abusing the staff or insulting their friends, perhaps she may have learned it wasn't acceptable and modified her behavior. Or if he had taken her threat seriously and used his vast resources to protect himself, or at least set the burglar alarm when he was home alone, perhaps she wouldn't have felt she could get away with harming him and not attempted it. Finally, maybe don't cheat on your spouse, just in general. But it's even a better tip for those who are dealing with someone who's a little, let's say, extreme in their emotions. Ted was cremated, and his ashes were then taken to a public memorial service at Lincoln Center. Over 500 people attended to say goodbye to their friend and colleague. Wynton Marsalis performed New Orleans funeral music from the Dixieland era, one of the jazz styles Ted loved best. In fact, several musical tributes were made to him throughout the service in between the eulogies his friends and family gave to honor him. His children and his sister and other family members were there. Generosa did not attend. Alexa and Greg's Aunt Sandy and Uncle Bob continued to fight to be granted custody of their niece and nephew. In 2005, they won custody, and the twins went to live with their relatives in Huntsville, Alabama. Once away from New York and all the publicity, they lived in relative anonymity afterwards. Ten years later, Greg and Alexa returned to 59 Middle Lane to try and sort out the memories, what they were told by their mother and Danny, and what they'd heard in the news media from the truth. Greg began making a documentary that was released in 2012 called 59 Middle Lane. It depicts their return to their childhood home and the memories of their father and mother, as well as their journey to the Ukraine to find out where they were born and to find their birth family. Alexa attended Bucknell University, her father's alma mater, and competed on the rowing team. She worked as a manager for a band in South Carolina. Greg attended film school in Los Angeles. He began the documentary project to exercise some of the demons of the past. Afterwards, it seems, he was able to reclaim the happy memories from the early days with his father and mother and twin sister at the beach house. So much so that he recently returned to the area to live and opened up a clothing store with his fiancée. The store, located in East Hampton, was named Big Flower after the first words he spoke in English and the name of his father's first company. It offers their own line of casual summer clothing. While filming the documentary, Greg and Alexa traveled to the Ukraine to return to the orphanage or children's home from where they were adopted. There was a nurse there who still remembered the twins and her joy that they were adopted. They were very moved that she still remembered them. From there, they found an address for their birth mother, but discovered that she had died. She had been an alcoholic, and besides the twins, another young brother was sent to the children's home and later adopted as well. They were able to find an aunt and a brother and sister, and they were all reunited. If you want a good happy cry, you can find 59 Middle Lane on Amazon Prime. Greg donates the proceeds from the documentary to Jazz at Lincoln Center and an adoption institute. Just last month, in June 2017, Greg and Alexa Ammon, who still own the house in East Hampton, listed it for sale. If you'd like to make an offer, the asking price is $12.7 million. That will do it for this episode of Once Upon a Crime. I hope you enjoyed this two-part episode. 
I'll be back next week with a new series, and I hope you'll join me then. Don't forget to subscribe, review, and tell a friend about this podcast. And thanks to all the new Patreon supporters. It means so much to me that you support the show by chipping in a couple of bucks a month. You got this episode early as a reward and for being such a great friend to the show. Thanks. Once Upon a Crime is written, produced, and edited by me, Esther Ludlow. Until next time, be good to one another. This week, I'm sharing a great indie podcast with you once again. This time, I want you to take a listen to Noir Factory podcast. This is an amazingly well-done podcast. The Noir Factory investigates mystery, pulp, noir, and true crime, and presents each as a story that will intrigue you and keep you coming back for more. And I guarantee Steve Gomez will be your new podcast voice crush. Here's Steve to tell you more. Hi, my name is Steve Gomez, and I'm the chief investigator at the Noir Factory podcast. If you're listening to this, I don't have to tell you about the expert work that Esther puts into each episode of Once Upon a Crime. She lays out each case and weaves a compelling story all in her own voice. If there are any episodes you haven't heard yet, then rectify that oversight as soon as possible. And when you're done and waiting for a new episode to drop, stop by the Noir Factory podcast, where you can catch up on noir, true crime, and hard-boiled stories. It's kind of like one of those $16 cocktails you get in trendy speakeasy bars, except with noir and true crime instead of booze. It's $16 cheaper. Stop by iTunes or wherever you download Once Upon a Crime and check out the Noir Factory podcast. Sit down and pull up a stool. I've got a story that you're going to want to hear. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com.